Everyone, thanks, thanks for letting me be here. Uh, I am, I'm in this building a lot, and you know, I've seen many of you at uh, a lot of our all-campus events, but I, I was trying to remember this week when the last time I was able to be in Cherryville for a worship service was, and I'm pretty sure there was one freak snow day that we had uh, in Lehighton this January that we ended up canceling the service and came back here. But So it's been you know eight, nine months since I've been back here, and it's really cool uh, because there are a lot of you sitting out there this morning. I, I don't recognize, and I'm really encouraged by that because that means you all are inviting friends and neighbors and coworkers, and you're telling people about Jesus, and God's church is growing, and BWC, all our campuses get to be a part of that. So give, give yourselves a hand um, this morning. Thanks. So today we're, we're looking at another character from the scriptures. We've been doing that every week over the summer, just taking, uh, taking each Sunday to consider one of these Old or New Testament figures and what their life and their relationship with God can tell us about our life and our relationship with God. And if you were paying attention to the, the pre-message video and the scripture and the two passages that we read from Ecclesiastes, you might guess that this morning's character uh, is the Old Testament figure of Solomon. Depending on your familiarity with the story, uh, an introduction or a refresher um, is in order. And we're going to move through this background part uh, pretty fast. And so if you're okay with listening quick, we just say okay. Okay, that's, I know you're with me so far. So good, good, thank you. So Solomon was the third king of the nation of Israel. He was the son of the second king, uh, David, and he was the, uh, the outcome of King David's relationship with Bathsheba. Uh, you can read that story in your Old Testament. We don't have time to talk about it today, but it's pretty juicy. It's kind of the stuff of soap operas and Dateline specials. Uh, and so if you don't know that story, that's your homework, one of your homework assignments for uh, today. And I mention that because knowing, knowing the background that this, this figure came out of is important for what he's going to tell us a little bit later. Solomon was a bit of a bully and honestly kind of a jerk, uh, but Israel grew tremendously under his rule, both politically and economically. By worldly standards, he was a pretty successful king, and for the most part, the country under his reign enjoyed a peaceful existence. Uh, humility isn't something that Solomon was known for. He, he lived like a king as well. But there are four things that Solomon was really well known for, and to help us remember them easily, they all start with the W. So turn to the person next to you, tell them your favorite word that starts with a W. Uh, I didn't expect any, that's a weird request, you don't, you don't have to do that. Was anybody going to say Wesleyan? No, okay, okay, good, you're still with me, thanks. My jokes aren't that good, but I appreciate um, I appreciate the laughter. So the first one, for real, the first W to help us remember Solomon is wisdom. Say wisdom. So Solomon asked God for wisdom so that he could better govern his people as a result. And God, because of this request, basically gave King Solomon the jackpot of divine gifts. God says to Solomon, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested, but I will also give you wealth and riches and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. This kind of double gifting to Solomon from God brings us to the second W, and that's wealth. Let me hear you say wealth. 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 Visitors came from all over the world to 
to see Solomon's riches and to learn from his wisdom. It's said that under his rule in Israel, gold and silver were more plentiful than stone, and he built whole cities to house his chariots. He was rich beyond beyond most of our comprehension. I'm going to venture a guess. He was rich beyond all of our comprehension if you're in this room this morning. It's also important to note that God gave Israel's kings specific instructions to not do what Solomon did, to not hoard their wealth and build entire cities to house their wealth. God told them specifically not to do that. And he also warned Israel's kings about accumulating something else. It's W number three, wives. Let me hear you say wives. Wives, okay. He broke that rule too. In fact, Solomon, it is said, had 700 wives and 300 other women. So he didn't listen to God on that front either. And it was eventually all this wealth and all those women who followed foreign gods and did not worship the God of Israel that would turn Solomon's heart from the one true God and eventually be his downfall. Solomon died of natural causes after about 40 years of rule. And though, though the nation of Israel was in a pretty good place for most of his tenure, he left it headed um, it, in the direction of a pretty hot mess, for lack of a better way to put it. The last W, and the one that we're going to talk about for the rest of our morning together, are the writings of Solomon. We can read about who he was and kind of his history in the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles, but Solomon is also credited with writing or contributing or being the primary author of three other books in our scripture. Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and the one that we're going to talk about today, the book of Ecclesiastes. They're all right in the middle of our Bibles, right kind of in the, that Old Testament wisdom section. Chances are if you kind of put your thumbs in the middle and crack it open, you're going to hit one of the three books that Solomon is credited with. He probably wrote Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life as he looked back on it and, and reflected. And the book has been called one of the most, if not the most, relevant books in the Bible because it so, so accurately and so beautifully captures the tensions that we live as Christians, as people who want to follow God and Jesus on, on this side of heaven, on earth here and now, or to use the phrase that Solomon would, the tensions that we live in, in life under the sun. Tensions like what it means to, um, to, to have both freedom and responsibility. Tensions like what it means to think about how fleeting and how short life is, but at the same time to maintain an eternal perspective. Tensions like how we enjoy and we embrace the pleasures of life, but we don't come to worship those things. That's what this whole work is about. And Ecclesiastes is pretty um, particularly feisty in this sense, because in just three verses in its writing, we can read conflicting statements like this. In chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he asks the question, hey, what do people get for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days are filled with pain and grief. And then one sentence later, he says, hey, there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in your work. 
work sucks, work's fine. You know, like we go back and forth. And that's what the whole book does. It's, it's a little bit, and I apologize, I don't mean this to be an offensive term. It's a little bit schizophrenic when you sit down and you read the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. We're over here, and then you're over here, and you wonder, what is the point of all this? What is this author trying to tell us? But we know, if we stop and think about it, and we stop and think about these tensions that we live in and statements like that, that both are true. They, they both feel true at one time or another. And a lot of times, things like that, freedom and responsibility and pain and pleasure, they're true for most of us at the same time. And that's what this book explores. You see, Ecclesiastes, it's, it's kind of Solomon's memoir. And, and in it, he looks back over a life spent trying to succeed and trying to get ahead. And he, and he tries to make sense of what it all meant. And along the way, he asks the questions that we all ask or, or will ask at some point in, in our life. What, what did I accomplish? Was it worth it? What's, what's my purpose? What, what is happiness? What is that really? What's true happiness? When I was a kid, uh, my parents, I, I grew up in rural western Pennsylvania, Clearfield County, just north of a little town called Punxsutawney that most of you will probably recognize. So we, uh, we didn't take a lot of vacations as a family. Instead, we always just did like one day trips. Uh, and one of our favorite spots that we would go to two, three, four, sometimes even five or six times a year was a little... Uh, at Free Admission Family Amusement Park. Back then it was called Bland's Park. Uh, now it's called Del Grosso's Amusement Park in Tipton, Pennsylvania. Anybody, has any ever, anybody ever been there? Not a soul. Wow. Okay, so some context. Think, think Knobles. Okay, think Knobles. Um, their mini golf at Del Grosso's is better. Um, the water park is better, but there's not as many trees, so it's kind of hot and like, ugh. Um, but it's really similar to a place like Knobles. And they had a, a really good kids section. They had one roller coaster that was like a six out of 10. Um, nothing, nothing super excited about. And so as we went, I have a younger brother, so as we went and kind of graduated out of the kiddie section uh, and would look for stuff to do, uh, the favorites were mini golf and the go-karts, but they also had a really awesome arcade. And my parents loved it because it was the only building in the whole park, the only spot in the whole facility that was air conditioned. So they didn't really mind like letting us spend a couple hours in the arcade. Uh, so anyhow, our, our family arrangement would be that my, my mom and my dad would always pay for our all day ride pass and they would buy lunch and dinner. But if we wanted you know, snacks or the frozen lemonade or to spend our money on extras like the arcade, that was on us. And so I would always save a good chunk of change for that particular experience. And it was one of those classic arcades where you could play all different kinds of games and if you did well, they would spit out you know, the tickets and you could save your tickets and take them to the counter. I don't even, I don't think there are many places like that anymore. Everything's on the, the scan cards now that keep your, track of your points for you. But uh, there's something to be said about taking like a garbage bag full of tickets to a prize counter in exchange for Chinese finger traps and, and <laughs> and silly putty. And so that's what we did. But I remember, I remember the day that my life like changed forever. And I don't remember who gave me this information, but I found out that you could actually save those tickets and bring them back with you the next time and like accumulate them 
through this season. You, you didn't have to exchange them that day for, again, the Chinese finger traps or the silly putty behind the prize counter. So like a whole new world opened up to me. And so I started saving these tickets, reminding you that you know we went back four or five times a year. So you know I, I could accumulate some pretty good ones. Skee-ball used to be my favorite game, but if you play skee-ball, you'll know that even if you hit that middle, tiny little, it, it's not a big payout game. So I exchanged kind of my skee-ball skills for some of the games that were probably a bigger risk but offered a greater reward. You know, the kind of ones that teach kids to gamble before you're really allowed to. And I spent way more money than I got back in tickets, but that's okay, not a big deal. And I remember the day that we went and I saw, I saw my goal behind the prize counter. I'm gonna age myself a little bit. It was a brand new shiny Nintendo 64, like up on the shelf behind the guy who was just a year older than me working the prize count, like there it was. And it had an extraordinary, like a crazy high number of tickets on it. I can't remember what it was, but I knew that that is what I was gonna save my tickets for. So I would go and I would put my dollar bills in the machine. They spit out tokens, I would put the tokens in. Again, wasted tons of money. And I remember the visit when it actually happened. I was playing the game that you put your token or your quarter in, and that becomes like the ammo that you shoot at the targets. Do y'all know, like at least I have a few heads nodding, um, that, that you, you shoot your quarter or your token at the targets and whatever you get in, you get that number of tickets. Well, that day I got my token. I God like smiled on me because my token went in the hole in the very top of the machine that's the exact same size as the, the token itself. The light, the siren on top of the game started wailing and flashing. The thing spit out, it felt, I'm imagining that day in my head right now, it felt like it spit out tickets for five minutes. As I picture the scene, there were kids younger than me like standing in the corner, just applauding. Moms were crying, like it was, it was the best, it was the best day ever. And so I take like that jackpot. I think actually, I think I remember my dad was super embarrassed because it was a big, it was a big spectacle. So I take that and I take that jackpot along with my tickets that I had saved up for the last season and a half. And I thought, you know, like this is my day. So the guy, they had the machine and it didn't, it, you put them in and it, it counted based on weight. And it gave me like a little slip and I took my slip to, um, to the prize counter and I thought for sure, like this is it. And you know what I got? Neither do I. Because it definitely was not the Nintendo 64. I think it might have been a mug um, and maybe, maybe a couple things of Laffy Taffy. Super disappointing. At the beginning of his reign, Solomon, he had a lot. He had a thriving kingdom that his father David left him. He had wisdom straight from God. He had wealth. But he lived life sort of like it was my arcade hall. He, he used what he had not to enjoy it and not to get the best out of it, but he used what he had to play games with it to try and get more from it, to squeeze more out of it. And he never really found the payout that he was looking for. God blessed Solomon tremendously, but he tried to use those blessings instead of just enjoying them. Instead of taking the time to appreciate what God gave him, he tried to manipulate what God gave him. And in this book that we're talking about today, he tells us how that all went. 
He says, I, I tried to find satisfaction by accumulating knowledge, but, but the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. I tried to pursue happiness by, through the things that make me feel good. He said, I denied myself no pleasure, but I found out that it was all meaningless. He tried to earn a better reputation, and at the end of his life realized that, hey, the wise aren't going to be remembered any longer than the foolish. He tried to find meaning in good deeds, but he realized that if you're a good person, people can still treat you poorly. And if you're a bad person, people can still worship and adore you. He tried to be the most talented, the most educated. You get the picture. And he collected wealth and women and possessions and treated them like trading cards or arcade tokens. And in the end, his conclusion was what Pastor Alana read for us in chapter 1, verse 17. I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. We're about halfway through if you're checking your watch. So, um, this, this shouldn't be, this is, doesn't have to be a, a depressing lesson, a depressing message this morning, because Solomon, though he didn't come to an answer until the end of his life, we have the, the advantage of being able to read what he found out now. It's depressing for him because it took him most of his life to get there, but it doesn't have to be for us. And what Solomon finds is about three chapters in, he gives what in this, this work that just keeps going back and forth, the thesis statement of, of what he's writing. It comes right after probably the most famous verses from this book that were in the pre-message video, the for everything, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. So you, I'm not going to read those. You know them. It's pr- the most well-known verses from Ecclesiastes. And for about 60% of you, you probably have the song by the birds stuck in your head right now. Preacher confession, I really do not like those verses. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because they're not meant to, to do what we do a lot of times with Scripture and reach in and just pull them out by themselves. Any... Any pop artist, any country artist, any secular speaker could take those verses for everything. There's a season and, and a time to live and a time to die. Anybody could take those and make that observation about life. But what King Solomon does at the end of his life, looking backwards, is he considers that truth and comes to this conclusion, the conclusion he reaches right after those verses. And he says this, What do people really get for all their hard work? I've seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people can't see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to end. So I conclude that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor. For these are gifts from God. And the rest of our time together, I want to look at four questions that we can ask in light of these verses. This, this is a morning where the preacher is going to ask you for a little bit of self-reflection as, as we close and you leave here today. These are four questions that eluded Solomon for most of his life, but they don't have to do the same for us. The first question, first one is this, are we enjoying what we have or are we using what we have? Are we spending life appreciating or are we spending life 
manipulating? Are we, are we trying to squeeze out more time or more money or, or leverage our relationships for some kind of social or political advantage? Do we always need to invest or trade up for something more or bigger? That's what Solomon refers to in those verses I just read where he says, I concluded that there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor because they are gifts from God. So this isn't biblical license to to do whatever makes us feel good. Life still needs wisdom, but it, it does mean that we should stop to use Solomon's phrase, we should stop chasing the wind. We should live the life we have now instead of longing for the life we think we'll have but know we'll never get. It does mean, going back to my arcade analogy, that I should have stuck to playing skee-ball because I liked it and I was good at it even though the payout from the ticket counter was super low. There's a great book um, about Ecclesiastes by an author named David Gibson. It's called Living Life Backwards. And toward the conclusion, he asks and then answers a question. I want to share what he writes. He says, what does it mean to love life and the world as if it's passing away? As if I meant to enjoy God and live for Christ first and foremost. Let me say that those two things go hand in hand absolutely beautifully. And for this reason, in the creative world, you can only truly enjoy what you don't worship. Gibson says that if we tap into the wisdom that Solomon is giving us and put together a list of what it really meant to enjoy life in the present, it could look something like this. He suggests, hey, go ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to a theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, read a book, laugh with some friends, spend your money, learn language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere where you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, and shape someone else's life by laying down your own. I ask the question again, are we enjoying what we have or are we using what we have? Question two, can we find contentment without finding more? If you never have more than you have right now, can you be okay? If you are never wealthier, if you never get that promotion or that recognition that you're looking for at work, if you never land the girl or the guy you have your eye on, if you never get younger, that's not going to happen, or healthier, can you be okay? The great St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions confessions about 1,800 years ago, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. God doesn't satisfy all our desires. If you've ever heard that, if you've ever thought that, it's wrong. It is a lie. God, his Holy Spirit, he helps us manage our desires, he helps us order them, but he doesn't remove or fulfill all them because he wants us to bring our desires to him so that he can change them, he can reorient them around himself and who he is and what he promises. And so if you find yourself wanting something, that's okay, that's a good thing as long as we take it to him. Contentment is not the same as satisfaction. And that's why Paul in Philippians can say, I know what it is to be in need. I've learned the secret of being not satisfied, but content 
in every situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Question number three. Can we trust God's perspective over our own? Those yearnings, those aches for the things that aren't right or we want but don't have yet, they, they are re- meant to remind us that this, life under the sun, this isn't it. This isn't all there is. We shouldn't feel comfortable. We shouldn't feel at home here. And Solomon, he learned that the long way around. He says, God has made everything beautiful for its own, own time. People cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. His whole point in writing this was that the world can't be leveraged to suit us. That life is meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be mastered. Uh, Here's how I want to read this. This is how an author named Jeffrey Myers puts it. Realizing that we don't understand everything, realizing this, can help us deal with life in a way that honors God. For example, don't be surprised if you find yourself in a frustrating situation that you can't escape by controlling it. Not everything can be fixed. Not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things have to be born, have to be suffered, and have to be endured. Wisdom doesn't teach us wisdom doesn't teach us how to master the world. It does not give us techniques for programming life such that life becomes orderly and predictable. Life has seasons and cycles and we can't control them. It's full and complex, but just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that God doesn't either. And so we return to the question, when we don't know or understand, can we trust God's perspective over our own? The last question, question number four, are we living now, are we living in the present in light of the future? One of the great and repeated themes over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you get time, read it this week. It's 12 chapters. It won't won't take you long. Read it in light of the information that you received this morning. But one of its great and repeated themes is that life is fleeting and we never know when God is going to call us home. The question that Solomon asks, I'm paraphrasing, the question that I think he's getting at is this. If God called you home tomorrow... If you had to give an account to him tomorrow or later this afternoon, would you be disappointed in how you lived today? If you stood before God and he asked you not how did you live your life or how did you live this season, but if if you stood in front of him and God said, hey, tell me about August 8th, 2021, would you be disappointed with how you lived life today? James Russell Miller was a Presbyterian pastor from the late 19th century. He wrote a really awesome and profound short essay called Beautiful Old Age. And I want to land the plane with reading just a couple excerpts from his essay. He says this, Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. It is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. It is the sea into which all the rills and rivers of life flow from their springs in hills and valleys of youth and manhood. We are each in our earlier years building the house that we'll have to live in when we grow old. And it's up to us to make that a prison or a palace. So the important practical question is this. How can we live now so that in our old age, when it comes, it shall be beautiful and happy? 
It won't do to adjourn this question until the evening shadows are on us. It'll be too late to consider it then. He offers some practical suggestions, not unlike that list that that we read earlier, and he concludes this way. Summing it up all in one word, only Christ can make any life young or old truly beautiful or truly happy. Only he can cure our restlessness and give us quietness and calmness. Only he can purify our sin, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Such a life grows brighter even to its close. Its last days are the sunniest and sweetest. The more earth's joys fail, the nearer and more satisfying do the comforts become. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together this morning. This is a circumstance, this is a moment where your word uh, probably calls us to some self-examination, to some recalibration, to think about our life and what we've been pursuing, why we've been pursuing it. So today, help us to do that. Help us to ask those questions. Help us to ask other questions that come to mind as we think about what we've been living for. For some, that might require a recommitment. It might call for a new commitment to reorient our lives around you and what you ask for us. God, if we've trusted you, but we've never put you in the right place and the things that we pursue in our lives, help us to do that. And as we go from here today, we ask that you help us not to just live life, but to enjoy it, to be grateful for what you've given us, to slow down enough to to see the blessings and the gift that you've given us, not to try and always squeeze more or do more or trade up for bigger and better things, but just to enjoy time, to enjoy life, to enjoy the sunrise and the sunsets, our families, our friends, good food, whether that's a a Kobe steak or a burger from McDonald's. God, help us to be grateful for you and the ways that you do bless us. Help us to see those every day and to live life accordingly. In the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask these things. Amen.